Oh, turn with us in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. And while you're turning there, you know, the subject matter we're going to be getting into tonight really touches my heart. And I think really touches the heart of anyone who has made a trip to Israel. Uh, one of the highlights of any tour of Israel, uh, the uh, list of you, you really shouldn't miss this, uh, right near the top, is a trip to uh, what's called Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. Uh, and as you go through Yad Vashem, there are just countless exhibits that show the reality of what the Holocaust was all about in very uh, overwhelming graphic detail. But maybe one of the most emotionally moving parts of going to Yad Vashem is to visit the memorial for the children. Uh, they've put it together in, in a remarkable an unforgettable way. You walk into this structure that is built like sort of a giant cone, and you walk in, and the lights go down, and it's completely dark. And then suddenly on the wall, there's this little light, little tiny light that you see, and because it's pitch dark, you know, your, your eye focuses in on that. And then there's another little light and another little light, and before too long, the entire inside of this giant conical structure is lit up with these lights just going back and forth. And what each tiny light represents is the over 1.3 million children that died in the Holocaust. And if you can walk out of there and not break down, you're a stronger person emotionally than me. And, you know, last January 27th, uh, you know, roughly about week, 10 days ago, was uh, National Holocaust or Worldwide Holocaust Remembrance Day. And on Holocaust Remembrance Day, all across the world, Jewish people will recite a very powerful slogan, never again. And uh, it's just the commitment of Israel uh, the commitment of the Jewish people to make sure that the level of atrocity, uh, the level of man's inhumanity to man, uh, the level of anti-Semitism, which gripped the hearts of a nation that was known for intellectualism, was known for great scientific achievement, was known uh, for the hallmark of philosophy, uh, this anti-Semitism that uh, is just hard to wrap our minds around, even to this day, uh, is the opposition that is captured in those simple words, never again. But interestingly, uh, as time is rolling on, and as I believe the time of the Lord's return draws near, uh, there's an old saying that history teaches us that man learns nothing from history. And that those who do not learn from the mistakes of the past are condemned to repeat them. And it's very interesting, you know, when I was first becoming aware of the history of the Holocaust, uh, when I was in school and particularly finding out more and more about it as a born-again Christian, you know, my thought was, wow, after something as awful as this, surely anti-Semitism has come to an end. Surely, 
uh, the world has learned the lesson uh, about stigmatizing and, and blaming and uh, laying all the world's evils on the Jewish people. You'd think, but you'd be wrong. And one of the, the things that I really believe is a sign that we are getting prepared as this world to receive the Antichrist, who will be the ultimate anti-Semite. He is going to go on a Holocaust 2.0 program that is going to wipe out two-thirds of the Jewish people, we're told prophetically, in the last day. But one of the sure signs that that's coming this way is that, you know, sometimes I hear the words never again, but they're uttered by Christians in reference not to the suffering of the Jewish people, but the conviction they have that God is completely done with the Jewish people, that he will never again deal with the world through Israel. And tonight in Revelation chapter 7, we are going to see in very graphic terms that this just ain't so. And so if you don't get anything else out of this time, (laughs) I hope that you will walk away with a very healthy appreciation of the fact that God is not finished with the people of Israel. In fact, the glory of the people of Israel and their impact on this world, their greatest achievement uh, south of the coming of Jesus himself is yet to come prophetically. Yeah, and and there's... You know, I, we don't want to assume that everybody understands, like, the entire Bible. I mean, Revelation is the last book. Right. And, you know, when I first started reading the Bible, I was 17 years old. And I started in the book of Genesis and just started reading. But it didn't take that long to realize that we were talking about a specific group of people, the narrative very much narrowed yeah. down. Yeah. Where when you first start reading the Bible, you know, you're reading about the whole world. You know, well, you know, you're reading about everybody on the planet. It seems like that's where the narrative is. Yeah. And then and then it all of a sudden starts narrowing down to a certain group of people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it gets into this narrative, and it gets more specific and more specific, but it it hones in on the people of Israel. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a smart high school student. You know, I was the surfer guy, the guy who liked to party in the backyard and pump the keg. And, you know, I was that guy. And so, I mean, if a guy who's pumping beer in the backyard every weekend is reading the Bible and and figuring out, you know what? Israel plays a pretty important role (laughs) with God. (laughs) You know, if I'm, if I'm figuring that out, then um, hopefully you are, you know, out there that understanding that Israel has an important place. And And it's not all past tense. And it's not all past tense. It's very much present tense. Uh, Zechariah, which you quoted that uh, two-thirds of Israel will once again be persecuted and killed. That book also says that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Yeah. And um, so we have some interesting promises in the Old Testament concerning Israel and about the land of Israel. 
uh, not just the lamb, but the people of Israel as well. Yeah. And so revelation is really a revealing too of how through the Messiah, all these promises to Israel are going to be completed. Yeah, it's a very Jewish book very, in a lot of ways. It's yeah. almost impossible to understand without that Jewish frame of reference. Yeah, even the beginning of this where it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, behold, are holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Now, even that alone is very rooted in some Old Testament stuff. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've really tried to emphasize to you in this this study of the book of Revelation is there are some people that will say, you know, that Revelation is just a bunch of symbols, uh, a bunch of allegories, uh, and just a bunch of strange references thrown in a wearing blender and put on puree. You know, and, and you know, it's like an inkblot test. You know, who can figure it out? It's like looking at abstract art. You know, you'll see in it whatever you want to see in it. But hopefully one of the things you've gathered as we've journeyed through the book of Revelation is this. There's a reason why it's the 66th book of the Bible. Because without understanding the previous 65 books, you're going to get lost. You, you can get lost in a big-time hurry. But if you slow down and say, all right, you know, these symbols, these things that might seem difficult for us to understand, are they either explained in the next few verses of the book itself, the mm -hmm. book of Revelation is very good about doing that, or are they explained in previous passages we've seen in the book of Revelation? And this is a great example of it. You know, the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or any other tree. You know, it's really an interesting reference back to the book of Zechariah again. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah is given a vision of four horsemen that are going around. And he goes, well, where are, you know, what, what are these four horsemen about? They are the ones who go to and fro throughout the earth. And, you know, commentators believe it, it, it's a picture of these angelic individuals that in a sense do recon for the kingdom of God in this world, seeing what's going on here. And so this reference back to these four angels is, is hearkening back to this picture, I believe, in uh, the book of Zechariah. But notice they're standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, this is a period of intense calm. Not even the wind is blowing. If you've been hanging around Tucson for the last uh, few weeks, you know that that's pretty unusual. We've gotten a lot of wind. I was going to say California might really like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Santa Ana <laughs> the winds wind that you and I uh, lived through when we were growing up. But the interesting thing is things come to a stop. And that's really interesting because uh, in Revelation chapter 6, we've seen things start out with a bang. We've seen what are called the uh, sealed judgments taking place. These sealed judgments where we see this scroll being given to Jesus. He's worthy to open the scrolls and loose its seals. Uh, for, for lack of a better term, without going into a, a whole lot of uh, backstory, and you can read this if you like, what he's doing is reclaiming the title deed, in a sense, of the earth. Man was given dominion over the earth. We were supposed to be running the show. We forfeited that dominion. 
to the wicked one. Now this world is dominated by the fallen world system. When First John chapter 2 and verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he isn't saying you can't enjoy an Arizona sunset. It isn't saying that, you know, oh, don't love that Grand Canyon. It's really bad for you. Uh, no, what it's saying is this fallen world system, which is dominated by the wicked one, uh, where wickedness is rewarded and righteousness is resisted. And if you've been following the news, that seems to be the way of the world these days, for sure. Uh, that is the world that we're talking about. And we see in this seal judgment, each of these seals being broken a manifestation of the wrath of God. And we saw the wrath of God. It's a really interesting thing there. You know, it's like God, in a sense, taking a step back and saying, you guys want to run this world? You want to run this universe on your own power and strength? Go ahead. You're going to get what you always wanted. And we saw the rise of the Antichrist. Instead of the true Messiah, the false Messiah comes on the scene. And instead of the true peace that God brings to our heart, that peace is taken from the world. Instead of the, the blessing and the supply, you know, that we see in the Garden of Eden where all of man's needs were perfectly met. There's going to be not only deprivation, but there's going to be economic inequality. The elites are going to get along great. The average person is going to be starving. You know, we, we saw that death that one quarter of the world's population is going to get wiped out, not just by war, but by the beasts of the earth. It's interesting that word beast, the word zoe, doesn't just mean that lions and tigers and bears are going to be going nuts, but it does mean created things, little buggies, if you will, little creatures. Uh, we're all very familiar with the microscopic pictures that we've seen of the Corona-19 virus, you know, the things that are a part of the, the biosphere, if you will, are going to be doing a number. This may, you know, people have different opinions about the rise of the coronavirus or where it originated or how it got going or whether it was genetically engineered or, or just uh, a bad break. But the fact of the matter is it's a preview of coming attractions because people are going to get wiped out and wiped out big time. And, and you know, we then see... Uh, this picture of martyrdom, the, the tribulation martyrs, the people who lay down their lives for their faith. And then we see this bombardment of Earth from the heavens, if you will, meteorites and asteroids and comets and you name it. Uh, God taking his hand back and going, you guys don't appreciate the fact that in this fallen universe, you guys live in a cosmic shooting gallery. Uh, there's all kinds of near misses that happen all the time, and sometimes they hit. We talked about the Tunguska event, and we talked about uh, the other incident where there was an air blast over Russia. 1,200 people ended up getting injured from the broken glass of just this small uh, chunk of an asteroid that blew up in the atmosphere. And just the titanic, uh, you know, megaton atomic-like explosions happen when these things are just near misses let alone these things just bombarding the earth and the people on the earth are going to get it they're going to go the day of god's wrath has come and who is able to stand so you see this culmination this crescendo if you will of the wrath of god people still not repenting and then it's like it stops there's like this eerie sort of silence yeah, we haven't gotten to the seventh seal yet. Yeah. So it, it, we're going to see a little pattern here that there's always this little interlude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where we get a picture of something else that's going on. Right. Something else that's important. Right. And so before the seventh seal is broken, 
this is what we're getting. Yeah. These angels come on the scene. Of course, I always heard of the four corners. You know, four corners is a biblical reference to the whole earth. That's what it's a reference to if you look it up. I knew that even before I read the Bible because I listened to a ton of Bob Marley. And Bob Marley, <laughs> Bob Marley always talked about the four corners of the earth, man. So I was always like, oh, I get it. You know, when I read the Bible. I was like, oh, man, I, I totally get it now. But uh, yeah, and, and some people will go off and they'll say, well, see, you can't trust the Bible because it talks about four corners. So it's saying that the, the world is flat and so on. Well, that's as silly as saying, well, man, I can't trust that uh, weather person on Channel 4 because they said that sunrise was going to be tomorrow at 645. Well, we know the sun doesn't rise. It's the rotation of the earth. Uh, this person's scientifically inaccurate. Well, it's a convention, you know. Yeah. It's like lighten up, Francis. So that's what we're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, and here. you can check out Isaiah 11, verse 12. It's a very cool passage on God bringing all of Israel from the four corners of the earth to return back to the land of Israel. So you can see where that term four corners comes from. The four in. points of the compass. Four we points might of use. the compass. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So we see that these angels come on the scene, they're holding the winds of the earth that, that should not blow on the Could earth. you imagine how trippy that would be? Especially uh, <laughs> after what has just gone on in Revelation chapter 6. Yeah. Things are really intense, and then they get pin drop quiet. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, you know, <laughs> being a music major in uh, university, you know, you go to a lot of symphonies. And I don't know if a lot of people don't go to symphonies nowadays, but there's, there's an amazing crescendo buildup in a lot of the music. You go to a Tchaikovsky you know, go listen to that, and it just builds up, and it builds up, and it's gong, 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 boom. And then all of a sudden, it's like super quiet in the auditorium, you know, and you're just waiting for the next big moment of Tchaikovsky to, you know, the big boom that's going to happen. You know what's coming, but it, it's, it's, it reminds me of that. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of uh, Pastor Chuck Smith's ministry. <laughs> Pastor Chuck Smith was the master of the long pause. And, uh, you know, when you'd listen to him on the Word for Today on the radio, there were times where he would pause so long you'd think, did the station go off or, you know. But there was real method to his man. And he would do this in person as well. You know, if you went in and talked to him, there were times where you'd ask him a question and he would just stare at you for the longest time. And then he might say, the more oh, it was did quiet, he, did he say, oh, <laughs> man, he had your entire attention, right? Uh-huh. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. There's this quiet that happens. And the people on the earth who are you know, basically taking up their shelter in caves and in fallout shelters from this bombardment, suddenly it stops. And, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, God is showing people in no uncertain terms that this is an accident. This isn't just, well, I guess a bunch of chunks of uh, Astro stuff from the Oort cloud just happened to fall in at this time or something. No, God is saying, here, pay attention. And it seems like a magnification of the Exodus. Yeah. You know, in my mind. Yeah. You know, in in the morning devos right now, I'm in the book of Exodus. And, you know, God is saying, I'm going to make sure that Pharaoh knows my power. Yeah. And that seems like this is where we're going here in the book of Revelation on a large scale. And then verse 2 says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, let's talk for a minute a lot of cool stuff. about sealing. What does a seal in Scripture symbolize in terms of God's relationship to his people, even for us as believers in this age? Yeah, it seems like it's definitely a possession, you know, that it's a, a seal is a sign of, you know, identity. Yeah, you are you are gods. Um, I, I I think of a couple. I, I think of a few things here when it comes to the ceiling. First of all, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter nine, we see this ceiling happening on the foreheads. If you the the, the ceiling uh, and the mark on the forehead is not a antichrist invention. It is something that God invents. You see it in, in, like I said, Ezekiel chapter 9. You see it there. You see it in the book of Revelation, this marking of his people, specifically here, the 144,000. So a lot of times people uh, get confused. They think of the marking of the beast, 666, and they think that is an um, invention of the Antichrist or of Satan. Uh, but what we're going to find out in this book is that there is nothing new with what Satan is conjuring up. He is literally mimicking the work of God. There is a deception that's going on of a mimicking work right. of Satan, and where if you do not know the real deal, and this is where I really feel for the young people nowadays, it's like they buy into the lie so quick. Right. Just like I did. You know, you buy into the lie and you think you got it together. And yet Satan just keeps, you know, keeps doing the things that look like the Messiah. They seem like it's the Messiah, but it's not. So that's one thing I'll say about the seals right off the bat is right. that Satan is mimicking God. Yeah. He is, disguises himself as an angel of light. Mm -hmm. You know, he mimics one of God's creations. We see, for instance, and we'll get into detail of this in Revelation chapter 12, how there's almost a picture of a satanic trinity. Uh, you have the dragon who is behind the scenes mimicking the role of the father. Then you get into Revelation 13 and you have the beast who is, receives a mortal head wound and then is miraculously healed, mimicking the sun. Then you have the false prophet who calls down fire out of heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit with fiery tongues. In Acts chapter 2, you have the mimicking of the Holy Spirit. And then it culminates in a satanic kind of sealing on the right hand or on the forehead. Mm, yes. And, and the right hand and the forehead, really significant in a Jewish sense, mm. because that's where they used to carry their phylacteries. You ever heard of the term a phylactery? It's a little box with a scripture verse inside of it. And it was an attempt to fulfill a commandment that you were to keep the word of God between your temples. It shall be at your right hand, teach your children, all these things. So they literalized it. They, they came up with these phylacteries, and they, they have these bands. They're very ornate. Uh, and uh, if you go to Israel, especially if you're hanging out around uh, the Temple Mount area, you're going to see some of these people with these huge phylacteries uh, on the front of it, on their forehead and on their right hand. So, so, so in the Old Testament, for those that don't know, in the law, uh, the first five books of the Bible, 
you get this command to keep the word of God in between your eyes, yeah. in your mind, right? And on your hand. In terms of what you do. In terms yeah. of what you do. And so this is something that's being mimicked by Satan in his work in the world. See, he's just taking God's word and he's just twisting it a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah. And, and that sealing, when yeah. we understand the blessing that being sealed is for us as believers, it's a really powerful thing. I love uh, Ephesians chapter one. Uh, you know, you want a picture of how the whole triunity of God gets into the act of our salvation. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 1 through 14 is really powerful. But in verse 13, we see what the Holy Spirit does in terms of our salvation. It says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of the glory of God. Now, Paul uses this picture of the Holy Spirit sealing us. In Roman culture, if you say uh, we're going to send one of your goods overseas and you wanted to make sure that it got there safely and nobody messed with it, you would seal it. You'd put some wax on it. You would have a signet ring that would have the imprint of your family on it. You would punch your signet ring into that, and that meant that belonged to you. That was a picture of something being the specific possession of a powerful individual. And so when we see that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, we are told that the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is the surest sign that you and I actually belong to God. What is the easiest way to discern whether the power of the Holy Spirit is in your life? Well, you look for the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, if you don't want to memorize all those, you can wrap it up, put it in a box with a bow, and say the sealing, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is when an individual, just like you and me, with all our warts and all our fallenness and everything else, finally starts mirroring the character of Christ. Because you and me, Bo, being Christ-like, requires an absolute intervention of God. It's a flat-out miracle. And uh, when you, you understand that that is, the, the, in a sense, the spiritual birthright of every believer in Christ, there is no born-again believer in Christ who's not sealed. Um, it's a really powerful thing. And in Ephesians chapter 4, we see how practical it is. In verse 30, we say, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, you can be sealed, you can be God's possession, and flat out completely live in the opposite way. And God has a response to that. He's grieved in his heart when what we say and what we do in the Christian life are two different animals. So, you know, this picture of spiritual sealing is our birthright as believers. And how interesting that when the tribulation gets going, when God 
is starting to deal with these children of Israel, 144,000. Before anything else goes on in the tribulation period, what happens? Yeah, he seals them. Yeah. And it's kind of neat. Jesus was sealed in John chapter 6, verse 27. You just read two passages in Ephesians. There's 2 Corinthians 1.22. There's 2 Timothy 2.19. Yeah. All these talk about uh, us being sealed. Um, so this is not a new concept. This is something that God does throughout the dispensations, throughout the periods of time. Yeah, his mark know? of ownership. His mark on of us. ownership. That's probably is, the best takeaway you yeah. can have on that. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives is that mark of ownership that God gives to us. Yeah, so now we get to this really interesting passage where a lot of people get tweaked on this section. Oh, yeah. I mean, this section right here becomes super controversial. Now, when I read the Bible at the age of 17 and I got to the book of Revelation, and you know how I read it? This is how I read it. I read it that this meant that 144,000 literal Jewish people were actually sealed by God, protected by God, during the tribulation period. That there would be uh, 12,000 from Judah, there would be 12,000 from Reuben, Gad, then Asher, then Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Ishtar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. There's some interesting things that we want to talk about with this list, but I took it... But I thought these were Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> yeah, see, and, and now, it wasn't until years later that I, that I heard all these different interpretations of this passage. Again, me being stoner bow, reading Revelation chapter 17, I just read this and went, you know what, I think it's talking about 144,000 literal Jewish people, because that's what it said. But as I, as you go on, you know, in life, you know, you hear all these different interpretations, and the Jehovah Witnesses had theirs that, hey, there's only 144,000 real Jehovah Witness. Actually, that's what they said. When they got to 144,000 who joined their group, then the end would come. But then right. they had a problem. They <laughs> right. had more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. They were like, yeah. Oh, well, these are super Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right. They're at 8.5 million members right now. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and you just see how cults work. They turn that around and used it as an opportunity to crack the whip on their members. Well, you want to be part of the 144,000. Only 144,000 get to go to heaven, see. But, you know, I mean, if you're sort of an okay Jehovah's Witness, you'll, you know, Armageddon will come and God will destroy you, but then he'll recreate you, kind of like the Star Trek beam me up, Scotty beam, and then he'll put you back together. But you just get to live on the earth. You don't really get to see God. But if you're a really good Jehovah's Witness, then you get to be part of the 144,000. So let's have a competition. Let's find out how many Awake magazines you can distribute. You know, let's find how much you can give to the church. Let's help, you know, and, and, and their list of requirements goes on and on. Yeah, and there, there's just plenty of groups that have taken this, not just the J-dubs, but there's plenty of other interesting groups that have well, there's, really there are wacko. There are people that we would agree with probably on 95% of doctrine who are born-again Christians who will look at this and say, this can't, this can't mean what it says. This is symbolic of the church. Yeah, and why is it so, why, you know, you started off this, this time with this idea of anti-Semitism. Why is it so hard for us to look at this passage of Scripture and just take it for what it says? You know, that a great illustration of this, and I don't mean to 
you know, deride this man because God obviously used him in a powerful and history-changing way. But Martin Luther was absolutely convinced Mm. that if he could go to the Jewish people and explain to them who Jesus was, that they too would want to follow Christ. But because of, uh, you know, again, hard-heartedness and because Jewish people had been road hard and put away wet by professing Christians in Europe for a long, long time, boy, when the Black Plague hit Europe, uh, you know, it was bizarre because the Black Plague would sweep through a particular area and it would bypass these Jewish communities. The Jews did not assimilate, in a sense, with the rest of the people, and they'd stay together and they would keep their kosher laws and their hygienic laws. And so when the Black Plague would pass them, the seemingly right-on godly individuals, God loves us, and I don't know those Jewish people over there, those Christ killers over there, as they would refer to them, and so on. And I went and touched them. Ah, here's my theory. The reason it's not getting them is because they belong to Satan. Satan's taking care of his own, so let's go persecute him. And they would. And, you know, the average Jewish person is, uh, you know, Martin Luther, I don't know what you're selling, but we're not buying because we see what you guys are, are like when you get the chance to do your thing. And Luther, man, I'll tell you, Luther made anti-Semitic statements that would absolutely curl your hair. So anti-Semitic that Adolf Hitler quoted him favorably as proof to the Jewish people that he was really telling them the truth. So... There is a real spiritual dimension here. And, you know, I, I know some people uh, who have had some tough dealings with individuals who are Jewish in business, and they are so angry at them. And these are Christians. It changed their whole theology. Wow. They look at this now and they go, this can't be actual Israel. God is done with Israel. We are the Israel of God now. And so this is symbolic, see? You know, and you look at this and kind of like you, you know, pumping your uh, beer keg in the backyard. And you know, 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, <laughs> Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph. And then, oh, wait a minute. The tribe of Joseph, Ephraim, is not mentioned. Mm. Yeah, because not- Ephraim is not mentioned. This must be symbolic. <laughs> this can't be an actual list. Well, you know, once again, there are a lot of different lists of the tribes of Israel, and they vary quite a bit. Yeah. You know, why is Joseph put in there and Ephraim is not put in there. Well, some will go to the book of Hosea, chapter 4, that talks about Ephraim has been given over to idols, leave him alone. Uh, The tribe of Dan is not mentioned in this particular passage. And uh, I'll tell you, there's a a fascinating prophecy that Jacob made about Dan. In uh, verse 16 of Genesis uh, chapter 49, it says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. There are some who believe, and we'll get into this in Revelation 13, that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's called the beast out of the sea, which is a picture of the Gentile nations. But his cohort, the false prophet, 
is described as the beast out of the earth, or literally the beast out of the land. There are some who believe that this false prophet will come from a Jewish background and uh, have that as his cachet in terms of that. And, and because of that, that could be one of the reasons why Dan isn't mentioned. Dan had a long and storied track record of being given over to idolatry. In fact, in Judges, it says they were the first ones that entered Canaan and uh, began to incorporate idolatry into their worship. So that could very well be why we see these exceptions to the rule. Why? Because idolatry in its purest form, is going to be the number one competition between worshiping the true and living God. How do you get the mark of the beast? Worship. You have to worship not just the Antichrist, but the The image image of the Antichrist that is made in his name. Why does Satan do that? Because Satan knows he can't take God in a fair fight, and he wants to poke at him. He wants to provoke God. He wants to hurt God if he possibly can. And nothing hurts God more And when people turn from the worship of the true and living God and settle for something less. Mm -hmm. Now, I know there's some of you out there who are kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, good. Well, I haven't bowed down to some ugly image straight off of Easter Island in a long time. I guess I'm safe from that. But, you know, really, idolatry, nobody bowed down to these images if they weren't promising them something. You know, if there wasn't a payoff for it all. And really, when you see these idols that people worship, All of them are associated with a legitimate human desire that gets twisted. Mm -hmm. Is there anything wrong, for instance, with sexual pleasure? No, God invented it. He was the one who designed it. But if you take that and you remove that from the intimacy and the sanctity of one man, one woman committed together for life, you've committed idolatry. Because you've taken something that's good and elevated it above God and what God says. You know, and, and so when we think we get the get out of jail free card from all that, last line of the book of First John, you know what it is? First yeah. John chapter 5? What is it? Uh, it says, don't worship idols. Little children, yeah. guard yourself yeah. from idols. Well, that wasn't just for John's time. That's for our time, too. Because I don't know about you, but I've got all kinds of things that come my way and try to compete for number one in my heart apart from God, don't yeah. you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Many things. Um, so, you know, if you can read Colossians chapter three, it's a great little chapter and it talks a little bit about idolatry in a way that it seems a little bit different from the way we think of these old ancient idols. You know, it talks about it in a subtle way of lustful inclinations and greed and all that stuff is being idolatry. So that, that's a good passage. You know, I, I want you to see also, too, is Scott mentioned that there's over, there is over, there's about 20 different orders of the 12 tribes, their, their listings throughout right. the Bible. Right. Um, and, and they're different. You know, not now, there is some in the Old Testament, one in Chronicles, that does not have Dan, I think, in it, if right. I remember. Right. Um, Dan is included, though, the tribe of Dan is included in the Millennial Temple. 
So, which is interesting. In Ezekiel, right? In the book of Ezekiel, yeah. The very, I think, last chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Now, the millennial, we'll get to that in the book of Revelation. It's down the road a little bit. It's when Christ rules and reigns. Yeah, Yeah. but it's finally Christ comes and rules and reigns. And then Dan is included in that list of the 12 tribes. Now, this is what... I think is cool is a lot of people rip Dan because of the, the idolatry and Dan was a tribe. And when, it, when you think of these 12 tribes of Israel, a lot of times we think, oh, they probably were all really good and everything was great. And that's just not the case. There was a lot of madness in them, you know. But you get from the Ezekiel passage that, man, is God not a God of restoration? You know, faithfulness, yeah, even when we're faithless. So faithful yeah. Yeah. Um, to put Dan in there in the millennial kingdom and say, you know, Dan, you're right there, brother. And I think they're the first tribe mentioned in Ezekiel's yeah. list. Yeah, they're number one. Yeah, yeah, of 12 tribes. Isn't that interesting? So in the millennial kingdom, when the list of the tribes is mentioned, Dan is put first. Which is interesting, right? Because Jacob had 12 kids, but the first one was who? Reuben, right? So it's interesting that Reuben doesn't get listed here first. Judah does. Right. But in the Ezekiel one, you know, Dan is put first, which I find fascinating because you read about Dan in Judges and throughout the prophets and you kind of go, whoa. Yeah, they were gnarly. Yeah, Dan yeah. really, they are called some things. Yeah. Not good. Not good. Right. Not, not, not what you want to hear from the Lord. You know, and, and so I guess to bring us to a point where we can uh, kind of leave off and then obviously explore some of these things more in depth, it's, it's hard for me to hold back here because I did my master's thesis on Romans 9 through 11 the picture of God's continued dealing with the people of Israel. And so it's an issue that is near and dear to my heart. But rather than having to wade through uh, a master's thesis or read 18 commentaries on the subject, listen to God's commentary about his continued plan for the literal sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the 12 tribes of Israel. People say, well, how could God keep track of those 12 tribes? They've lost the records, all that. You know, it's like the silly thing where people say, well, you say that God is going to, you know, resurrect our bodies and reassemble our dust and make, how could God, God can keep track of all that. Now, that's not too hard for yeah, God. No, no tribe is lost. Yeah, yeah there is no God's, such thing as a lost uh, yeah. tribe of Israel. And some of them are less subtle than others. Do you know someone named Levi? <laughs> you know what tribe they came from. You know, uh, someone who's named Cohen. That's a name for priest. It means they go back to the priestly tribes and so on. You know, somebody named, uh, you know, there was a leader of the Yippie movement, Jerry Rubin. Uh, You know, he was a uh, 60s radical. But I'll tell you where his tribe came from, you know. And and again, you you get these, these pictures and these hints. But listen to what God said about his plans for the Jewish people. And if it ever creeps into your heart that you look at the Jewish people and you look down on them, and you say to them, never again will God use these people. You know, they're done. They're, they're, they're finished. And believe me, I've had some encounters with some sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have been less than pleasant. You know, they're, they're kicking at the goads. They, they don't 
by and large receive Jesus as their Messiah. Some are very friendly about it, some not so much. Our dear, dear friend, Ronnie Simone, we love him. And he's very sympathetic to the idea that Jesus could very well be the son of Joseph, the suffering servant. He's like moving in that direction. But because his parents spent time in Dachau, um, the idea of accepting Jesus as the son of David, very, very tough hurdle for him to get over. And I love Ronnie, and he has been so involved with so many Calvary Chapel pastors down through time, and so many people have prayed for him, and he is so respectful and so scripturally accurate, even in terms of what he says, the New Testament says, the sites you go to, and, and so on. And I pray for this man, and, and my heart breaks for this man. And, and, and when I look at people like Ronnie, it's almost like the Lord says, you're sharing my heart for your people, for, for my people. You're sharing my heart at this moment. And that's the attitude we need to have. Why? Because, and we'll wrap up with this, Jeremiah chapter 33 And verse 23 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, And if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return, and I will have mercy on them. I tell you, when I was in that children's memorial at Yad Vashem, I was walking out of there. You also walk and you see on the outside as you leave Yad Vashem, there is a quote from the book of Ezekiel that God will put his spirit again upon his people and regather them again to the land. I just stare at that and it takes my breath away because we are seeing this prophecy come to pass. God forbid that anyone associated with this church looks down on the Jewish people. God forbid that we allow our intellectual wheels to turn and start exalting ourselves and feeling haughty about ourselves because we're members of the body of Christ. Say, oh, those Jews over there. God forbid we go with the tide in this world and say, well, you know, Israel, you know, they don't get everything right over there. And, you know, they're really mean to the Palestinians. And maybe we should boycott and divest and sanction Israel. They're just like South Africa. Even a professing born-again Christian like Jimmy Carter wrote a book likening Israel to the apartheid regime in South Africa. God forbid. There's a saying in Greek, Meganoida, may it not even enter into the heart of a man to think such a thing. Because here in Revelation we see, as another tour guide of ours, Steve the tour guide, would say, if God does not fulfill his good promises to Israel, he's a con man. He's broken his word. If God keeps his covenant with day and night, 
He's going to keep his covenant with the people of Israel because he loves them the same way he loves us unconditionally. Not because we're any great shakes, because he's faithful. You want to pray for us? Yeah. Father, we thank you and glorify your name and your son's name. We glorify Jesus. We thank you so much for the cross and the blood that was shed, our Passover lamb. Uh, we thank you that you have sealed us. You have set your mark upon us, your Holy Spirit. And I just want to pray for anybody who has not received the Holy Spirit, Father, that they would ask right now in this moment that they would say, Father, send your Spirit upon me. Give me your Holy Spirit that I may walk not in my own power, but in the power of your Son. Use me, my life. May your spirit rest upon me and in me and with me all the days of my life. Well, we praise you, Father. You are so good, so faithful. Even when we are faithless, you do remain faithful, for you cannot disown yourself because you have sealed us, Lord, with your mark. And we thank you for that. We pray you help us to reach our city, uh, be with those in our church that are ill and Struggling, We pray that we would love one another, bear with one another what they're going through. And uh, Father, fulfill your law of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.